Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now, as I mentioned, we're going to start from today on this new series uh, in Genesis. And really, the book of Genesis is the book of origins where, you know, it gives us many answers. It, it explains to us, you know, who this God is in, in some form. It explains to us as to how all this that we see around us came to be. It explains to us what the purpose of this world is. It explains to us why uh, we exist in this world and what is our purpose. And it even explains to us, you know, while the world around us in one sense is beautiful, it also explains to us that why it also is broken. Uh, you know, what, what is also wrong in this world? And, and so th- this is a book that really gives us a lot of perspective with regards to that. And, and when you think of really even the doctrine of creation, it, it is a foundational doctrine. And, and in some sense, it is from this doctrine that every other doctrine flows up. See, because when you understand that it is God who's created this world, and it, it didn't just happen like that, that uh, he created you and me and there is a purpose, then that has ramifications to how you and I understand this world. It has ramifications with what is reality and what is not. It has ramifications with regards to um, what we understand is right and wrong and who determines that. And then as a result of this doctrine of creation, as we move on, we understand what happened at the fall Uh, In the Garden of Eden, we understand why that was so terrible, why that was uh, a total no-no. And we understand why those consequences then came about as a result of the doctrine of creation. And then flowing from that, then we understand the doctrine of redemption, why we, man and this whole world, need saving that we can't save ourselves, that that this world is not going to just repair itself just like that. And so it it is a fundamental and a foundational doctrine, this um, doctrine of creation. And and I hope that as we go through these first two chapters and even the third chapter, that it would grow us in our understanding of all, all these and even more. And it would grow us in our love for God and in our view of God. And that way it would impact the way we live our lives. Now I've got a very, we're going to look at just the first two verses, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. Now I have a very simple outline here. We're going to look at the, the when of creation, the who of creation, and the what of creation. Let me just read 
Let's just look at the, 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 the first point, the when of creation. It's really just the, the, the first phrase there in the first verse. In the beginning. That's the when of creation. In fact, this is where we get the title of the first book of the Bible, that is Genesis. In the Hebrew Bible, the word Bereshith, which is translated in the beginning, is actually the title of the book. That first word is the very title of this book. But then you say, so then why do, why do we have Genesis then? Where did that come from? Well, that came from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called as the Septuagint, that, uh, you know, over time translated it as a source or origins, or i.e. then translated into English as Genesis. So that's why we have the very title of this book as Genesis, or literally, the beginning. In the beginning. You know, in the ancient Near Eastern culture that uh, was there when Moses is the author of this book and as he's talking to the people of Israel and the culture around them, the ancient Near Eastern culture, they had a very different concept of the world and time. You know, for the ancient Near Eastern culture around, the, the universe was something that had always existed. And, and to them, the, it just goes through these cycles, through these seasons in this cyclical pattern. That was their understanding of the world and time and so on and so forth. And so even to this day, when you think of some of the Eastern, cult, uh, Eastern religions, like for example in Hinduism, you see the same concept. They, they believe in these cycles, this 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 thing that they call as karma, going from one state to another state and going around in this, in this cyclical pattern. And you find something similar uh, in something like Buddhism as well, another Eastern religion. So uh, there was this idea that the, the universe had always existed and it just goes in this cyclical pattern and it just goes from one form to another. In fact, even science, it's not just religion, even science uh, in the 1950s, you know, believed in what's called as a steady state of the universe, which stated that the universe had always existed. And then, like many scientific theories, as they got more data, that idea got replaced by what is now popularly known as the Big Bang Theory, which now states that, oh, no, no, the, the universe didn't always exist. It has a beginning, and it all happened with a Big Bang. Now, regardless of whether now science or other religions agree whether there was a beginning to this world, God's word that was written many, many, many years ago reveals to us that there was, in fact, a beginning. And it was not just a beginning in, in a cycle of sorts, this never-ending cycle, but it was, in fact, the beginning. The beginning of time and matter and space. 
that there was an absolute real beginning to everything in this world. The very first word of the Bible tells us that. Now this word for beginning, see, it it marks out a, a, a sort of starting point of a specific duration. One commentator writes uh, and says it's something like uh, saying in the beginning of a year. So it points to the, the, the starting point of a duration of time, and so it also anticipates the end as that duration of time comes to an end. Now, there are other words in the Bible that can be translated as beginning, but it's only this word, Bereshit that speaks of beginning with a duration and anticipating this end. And we say, okay, Benoit, oh, that, that's great, but you know, why is it so important for us to understand this? See, because what the first word of the Bible is saying is that there is not only an absolute starting point, an absolute beginning to everything in the world, but there is also going to be a duration and an end to this current existence. In other words, that there is... Not this endless, purposeless cycle that's going to keep going on, but there's a definitive beginning. It's going to move in a particular, toward a particular and purposeful end. That there is a future goal, an end that this beginning is going to move towards. And there's going to be meaning in all that happens once this beginning has started and as it moves towards that goal. And really, when we come to the end of the Bible, you know, we read in Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. See, this was always God's plan from the beginning. That when he created the heavens and the earth, it was going to move in a certain way with a purpose and a goal. And when that goal was reached, the entire universe, as we know it now, would come to an end. And then God would create the new heavens, and the new earth. So what that means is that what happened in the fall in the garden, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and sin came into this world and death came into this world, this was not an accident. You know, God didn't make this beautiful creation and then suddenly Adam and Eve rebelled and God wasn't thinking, oh no, it's all messed up now. What do I do? I guess I better come up with a better plan now. No, that wasn't the case at all. In fact, as Isaiah 46, 9 to 10 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning 
from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God declares the end from the very, be- from the very beginning and his purpose will stand and it will go toward that end. You know, this should give us great comfort as God's children. Because we understand that this world is not just randomly moving somewhere. Nothing is random. In fact, things that happen in your life, the good, the bad, and even the ugly, it is not outside of God's plan. God has a purpose in all this. And it will all finally culminate in the redemption of his people and this entire creation. Where there will be the new heavens and the new earth. And those of you who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ will be in this new heavens and new earth. I mean, what an experience that will be, right? fullness of joy and no sin and no disease, living a life for His glory, a life that truly will be our best life that we have never known now. And it'll be in a world that will never have an end now. That will be an endless world. It'll be forever. So that's the when of creation. It was at the very beginning of everything. There was a starting point, and it it is going toward a particular goal, and it is anticipating the end. The very first word of the Bible tells us that. Now we look at the who of creation. The who of creation. It reads, in the beginning, God created. I love that. You know, the very first line of the Bible, right up front says, God created. There's no proving, there's no making a defense for the existence of God. It just simply declares that God is. You know, Psalm 14 you think, uh, but, but, but why? Why isn't the Bible making any defense for God? Well, Psalm 14.1 says, It is the fool that says in his heart, there is no God. And we know from Romans 1 as well that God has made himself clear to all mankind Every single human being in this world has an innate sense in them that there is a God. The Bible tells us that. And God has even revealed himself in all of creation. But the Bible tells us, even though God has revealed himself that way, and and every human being deep down inside knows there is a God, the Bible says man, because of his own sinfulness, suppresses this truth about God because they don't want to submit to God. So 
So even when we come to the first line of the Bible, there's no case made for the existence of God. It just simply declares it, that in the beginning, God. Now the name here that's used for God is, it's Elohim. And, and this word is in the plural form, in the original. You know, plural means, you know, when you add an S to, you know, there's the singular, one thing, and plural, multiple things. And so this, this word in the original, it, it's in the plural form. And when it refers to the one true God of the Bible, it's what is called as a plural of majesty. It's emphasizing God's sovereignty and his power and, and the fact that he is beyond all comparison. It's really like saying he is the God of gods. He is the supreme God. Now, I just want to make a clarification. When it says God of gods, I'm not in any way insinuating or in some way supporting the fact that there are other gods. But the Bible declares this is the only one true God. And that he is the most supreme. And it, it, it really is just a, it's a way of saying that there is no one like him in this category. That there are no angels, no human beings, nothing that can be compared to him. He is completely of a different category. You know, I, I talked about this when I went through First Peter, talking about God's holiness or his other-thanness. You know that, you know, sometimes we can think of God as though, you know, here's man, here's us here. If there's a spectrum here, you know, we're here. And sometimes we can wrongly think, oh, God's just on the other side of the spectrum where he's just a bigger version of us and mightier and stronger and wiser and everything else. No, that's not so. He's just nowhere on that spectrum. He's on a different category altogether. He's so other than. That's what makes him God. That's why he is the God of gods. The, 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 that, that emphasis is given there. That he is the supreme one, the sovereign one, and there is none like him. That he alone is the one true living God. You know, you can imagine as the, the people of Israel are hearing this, in the culture around them, there were lots of false gods. You know, the sun god and the sea god and, uh, you know, you, you name it. So many different false gods. And so what this verse is really saying is, no, they're all false gods. At the very beginning of the world, there was nothing else other than Elohim, the God of gods. The one true God who is supremely sovereign and all-powerful. This supernatural being that cannot be compared to anything because he is of a different category from everything else. Now there are some things that we can understand about this God 
when we know that God was present at the very beginning of everything. So if God was present at the beginning of time and space and matter, before all that we see around us, it means that God is eternal. That he has always been. Because he's been there before there was anything else. That he has no beginning. That he is self-existent. See, if God was present before there was anything in this world, that means that God doesn't need anything for his existence. Because there's nothing there, and he's still there. So what we can understand about God is that nothing caused God to be born. He simply is self-existent and eternal. He is the Alpha and the Omega, as the Bible says. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or even or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You know, now, one of the things we need to understand as we go through this whole section, really, uh, this, if I were to uh, break down this section of it really runs from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-3. It forms one section. And really, if you look at this section, the word God is mentioned about 35 times. 35 times. And so when you think about it, while it is the account of creation, what do you think the, the point of it all is? It's God. See, that the, the, the creation account is not just to reveal to us how creation came about, but to point to the ultimately to point to the glory and the majesty and the wisdom and the might and the order and design of God himself. Why? So that God would be given the glory as we see his work and as we understand more about who he is and how he has made this world. To teach us about his greatness, that it would cause us to be in awe of this God, that we would worship him more. And so right at the start of Genesis 1-1, we read, in the beginning, God. And what did he do? God created. Now the word make is something that's used for man as well as for God in the Bible. Man can make things. God can also make things. But the word create, on the other hand, it's a word that is used only by God in the Bible. Because it is only the work of God. Man cannot do this work of creating something. 
And the word create, it, it stresses the idea of creating something that is new and good and, you know, this new kind of existence, some new thing that's been, that's brought about that only God can do. So even when you think of even verses like when David talks about create in me a new heart, O God, you understand what he's saying. God, I can't do this. This is something that you've got to do. Or when we see even in the New Testament about that we are new creation as born again believers, we understand that this, this is a special work of God. This is not something that man can do. And really, if you look at Genesis 1, it is used at very specific instances. At the beginning of creation in Genesis 1.1, where it says God created, then you see it used in Genesis 1, 21 and 22, where God first makes animate life. And then again in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, when he makes the, the pinnacle of his creation, man. And so what is trying to be emphasized here is that God is creating something new and this is not something that man can do or create. Only God can do this. And when you look at the context, okay, it's in the beginning, there is nothing there and it says God creates. So how does he create? He creates out of nothing. I mean, think about it. There's absolutely nothing. What do I mean by absolutely nothing? Absolutely nothing. There's no matter. There's no material. There's no molecules or atom or anything. Whatever you can think of, from the microscopic level to the, the biggest thing you can think of. There's absolutely nothing. And God, by his supreme power, creates the entire universe. This is the greatness of God. That's what it's pointing to. Because only God can do this. Now, according to the signs of the day, the science of the day. It says that this universe came about by chance. You know, because there, there was some matter and it all just came together and there was a big bang. Now the question you need to ask yourself is, if there was something before God made the universe, some kind of matter or whatever, well, where did that come from? The Bible makes it clear that it was not that some matter was present or some impersonal force that brought about everything in this world. Matter is not eternal. Only God is. And God was present at the very beginning and he created everything. Something that only this 
incomparable supreme God could do, create the world out of nothing. You know, and when we come to the New Testament, Hebrews uh, 11 uh, is the chapter of faith. And really how the author introduces and talks to us about faith is, uh, you know, he defines faith and then he talks about it within the context of uh, creation. Just so even us as believers would not ever forget that, yeah, this is what God has done, that he created this entire universe out of nothing. Let's just read that, Hebrews 11, 1 to 3. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Now, pay, pay close attention. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Or in other words, that God made this world out of nothing. Again, John 1.3, talking about the second person of the triune God, where it says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. What is the all things? Everything in this world. God created it all. And then to emphasize the point, it's saying that there is nothing in this world that was not created by him. Not even matter. And again, what what this shows is not just God's power, as powerful as it may be, as he may be. It definitely is. But it's again showing that God is categorically different from everything else in this world because everything else in this world is created and God is not. He is eternal, self-existing, not dependent on anything. You know, a couple of commentators, they made a... um, made this chart describing how the very first verse uh, destroys a lot of false ideologies and, and beliefs. Many of the isms as we know it. Let me just summarize some of what they have said. Genesis 1.1 refutes atheism, the belief that there is no God. Genesis 1.1 says that there is a God, he has always been, and the universe is neither the result of a big bang, nor the result of matter eternally existing. And God himself reveals, God reveals himself through what he has done, and in the very hearts of every human being. Genesis 1.1 refutes pantheism. It's the idea that God and creation are one, so that the the tree and the animal and the flower and the land and the star and everything else, uh, you know, it's it's all part of God. But Genesis 1.1 says that God is distinct and separate to creation. He is altogether in a different category and cannot be compared to anything created. God is not part of creation. 
Genesis 1.1 refutes polytheism, many gods, because only one God created all things, and he was right there at the very beginning. Genesis 1.1 refutes materialism, the belief that nothing exists other than matter, that matter is, is the only reality and it has been eternal. But Genesis 1.1 says that God created matter and is distinct from his material universe. Genesis 1.1 refutes dualism, the belief that good and evil are eternally coexistent. But Genesis 1.1 says that there was only one God present at the beginning and there was nothing else present. And finally, Genesis 1.1 refutes humanism, the belief that only humans are the ultimate reality and so they determine what is right and wrong and what they think is the most important. But Genesis 1.1 affirms that God is the supreme reality and everything else exists to show his greatness and his glory. And so when we understand God this way, and when we remember God this way, as this supreme, sovereign creator, that should, again, bring you encouragement as his children. See, because it is this same supreme God that is close to you. It is this same supreme God who watches over you. It is this same supreme God that we pray to, like Jeremiah, when he prayed to God when he was in trouble, in Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. So this should give us confidence that this is our God. This is, this is the God that we trust in the very creator of this world who has made everything. He is our God. The almighty creator of this universe. God, Elohim, the incomparable, powerful creator God. So that's the who of creation. Now lastly, let's look at the, the what of creation. Look at the last part of verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the heavens, that refers to the, the sky, the, the, the space, the, the stars, the planets, the sun, and everything else. And the earth, obviously the, the planet that we live on. So in other words, God created Everything, from the microscopic atoms and the neutrons and the protons in their orbit to the large solar systems and the planets orbiting around. From the tiny dust particles to the, to the massive supernova. You know, from the tiny organisms to the, the, the biggest animals that you can think of. God created them all. 
And just as we saw in John 1, 3, that God created all things, another parallel passage would be Colossians 1, 16, 17, referring to Jesus Christ, where it, said, where it reads, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Everything was created by God. So the idea of heaven and earth, it encompasses everything. Even things that man may not have discovered right now. I mean, mean, think of this, right? Now, it's Moses who is penned Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And he's writing to the people of Israel. You know, there wouldn't have been these electron microscopes at that time, where at the, you know, they know about these things at the micro level. Nor would they have had these enormous telescopes that would tell you the size of different stars and all the other galaxies and, and so on and so forth. See, in our time, we've discovered so many things since the time of Moses. And if we have another thousand years, by God's grace, we will discover more things. But at the end of the day, all of what man discovers, we can say, God created. He created everything in the entire universe. It's a staggering thought, isn't it? I mean, everything... The entire universe. I mean, the, the, the vast space above us and the planet that we're on, every single thing is created by this one great being. It's a staggering thought. And so then, when you get a glimpse of the, the greatness of this one being, God, Elohim, we realize... I mean, what are we? A tiny little dot on a tiny little planet and a tiny little galaxy amongst many others. God created the heavens and the earth. Now, verse 2 goes on to explain what the earth looked like after God first created it. Let's read it together. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, there are different interpretations as to how people read this verse, and I want to tell you about uh, at least two of them, because I think this is important for you to understand them. In the early 1800s, uh, a noted Scottish theologian named Thomas uh, Chalmers, because of the influence of modern geology that said that the earth is a few billion years old, he wanted to somehow harmonize what modern geology and science is saying with what the Bible is saying. He wanted to somehow bring the two together. And so he proposed the idea of the gap theory. 
saying that there was a gap of a billion years between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. According to this theory, Genesis 1-1 is what God had originally created. And then Satan and his demons, when they rebelled and fell, verse 2 now is a description where it says the earth is without form and void and the dark and the deep is what resulted from God's judgment because of Satan's rebellion. And so according to them, then verses 3 onwards is really a description of God's recreation of what was ruined. Now remember, all this was to somehow fit in the, the modern geology that says the earth was a billion years old and somehow harmonize it with scripture. And this same idea of Thomas Chalmers was then picked up by the American theologian Schofield. And it was in his very popular Bible, uh, his uh, study Bible. And because he was a prominent theologian, it became one of the predominant views of conservative Christians for about 100 years till the early 20th century. Now the problem with the gap theory is this. Nothing in the text shows that there's a gap of a billion years between verse 1 and verse 2, first of all. And nowhere in the rest of the Bible does it say that God destroyed his original creation because of Satan's fall and then recreated it in six days. And then on top of that, without getting into the nitty-gritty of the, of the grammar, verse 2 is not talking about something totally different from verse 1, as though they were two separate events. It's really providing information about the, 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 the very state in which the earth was in when God created the earth. It's not referring to what the earth became over a billion years because of something that happened. The grammar is quite clear in the original, and, and so it, it, on many levels, you can easily refute this gap theory, but it, I, I mentioned this to you because it was one of the predominant views of conservative Christians for almost 100 years till the early 20th century. Now the other interpretation is that Genesis 1-1 is, is the title of chapter 1. And verse 2 is what there was in the beginning. Right at the beginning, this is what the earth looked like. And verse 3 onwards is really where creation starts. Now the problem with this view is if God is the one who created everything, like I asked before, then where did this pre-creation material come from? And then on top of that, how can it be said that God created the earth when the earth already existed in some form in verse 2? And really then, God's Creation is just then a recreation of earth from some pre-existing material.
And then on top of that, it would contradict Hebrews 11.3 that we read before, that God made the universe not out of things that are visible. In other words, the universe was not made with pre-existing material, with pre-existing matter. It was made out of nothing. So verse 1 cannot be a title And verse 2 cannot be what was before creation. And verse 3 is not the beginning of creation. Verse 1 is the very beginning of creation. That's what God first did. And verse 2 gives three descriptions of the earth that God had already created now. Now let's look at it one by one. First it says... The earth was without form and void. Now, how do we understand what this means? Without form or formless. Void meaning empty. The idea of the earth being without form and being empty, it does not mean that there's a chaotic state. Rather, it's describing the earth with all its raw materials, but it hadn't been shaped into the earth as we know it. It's still uninhabitable, so it has to be fashioned in a certain way to be habitable. So I guess another way of saying formless and void would be that the earth was uninhabitable and therefore uninhabited. And and really, when we continue on reading Genesis 1, we get a better idea of what this means. Because where it says formless, days 1 to 3, God is now forming. He's forming the, uh, the, the right kind of environment. Day 1, the forming of light and dark. Day 2, there is the skies and the waters. Day three, there is the land and the oceans. So God has formed things, the right kind of environment. Now he's going to fill the void. So correspondingly, day four, what does he create? The sun, the moon, and the stars, corresponding with day one. Day five, he creates the fish and the sea, uh, the fish and the birds corresponding with day two that he formed the skies and the waters. And then day six, he creates all the land creatures and man corresponding with day three that he created land and the oceans. And so you can see there's the the forming and the filling that is happening. That's what's happening in the, the, the rest of the creation account. And then when you come... To day seven, God rests. And listen to what Genesis 2.1 says. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them and everything in it. What does Genesis 1.1 say? God created the heavens and the earth. So he's created it in this uh, rudimentary form 
and the next six days is where he's completing this work. And at the end of the seventh day, as we come there, it says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. He formed and he filled. And really what you see here is that God is a God of order. It shows that you know, there's a step-by-step progression unfolding according to the mind and the wisdom and the plan of God. He's a God of order, not, not chaos. So when in verse 2, the, it says that the earth was without form and void, the following verses explain how he gave it form and how he filled up the void and once it was habitable. Once it was habitable, things uh, came there. In fact, Isaiah 45 verse 18, we read this. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. And so, so you see the beginning stages of that here in Genesis 1-2. God created the earth. It was formless and, and void or empty, but it doesn't mean that it was chaotic or anything of that sort. His purpose was always to transform the earth and make it habitable and fill it up step by step. Now the next description of the earth, in verse 2, it says, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now again, some point to darkness and say, oh, you know, there there you go, there's evil there, because darkness is often used figuratively to speak of evil in the Bible, which is true. Uh, there are other places in the Bible where darkness is used to talk about, figuratively to talk about evil, but that's not what's going on here. Some would even say that in the Bible, darkness is used to talk about uh, figuratively as a shadow of death. Uh, and so either way, this darkness that's here, this is not a good thing. This is not an earth that God has created. So that's why this is the, the, the pre-creation thing, what it was or like Schofield and Thomas Chalmers and all that would point to, no, this is the, uh, the world that is under judgment. This is, a, this is a bad thing. Again, here, there, there is nothing wrong with this darkness. It's the same darkness that gets named as night in verse 5, as we will see. And the deep here, this is a reference to the primeval, primeval waters. See, from a scientific point of view, one commentator uh, quoting some physicist said, it could have been a large ball of water, a large sphere of water. So there's no land, no mountains, no valleys, no dry land. J- just this giant ball of water, uh, you know, having everything in it, all the raw materials that's required 
to fashion it into the earth that we know it to be. So there's the earth that is formless and void, covered with this large body of water, and it says, and there's no light, everything is in the dark. So, so you get this picture, this, this ball like this, you know, floating in darkness that God has already created, all its raw materials ready to go on to the next step. And to remove any kind of doubt that you know, there was some kind of chaos or all this is under the judgment of God, there is now a beautiful description, again, of the earth and what's happening. And this is the last and third description at the end of verse 2. It says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Who is the Spirit of God? This is most likely referring to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God. So what you see here, that this is not creation under the judgment of God and God has just kind of left it and it's going chaotic and uh, you know, things are horrible. This is a creation over which the Holy Spirit is hovering over. Now the word for hovering, you know, it's not the idea because some translations even says you know, the Holy Spirit was just moving over the waters. So it's not this idea of a kite or something just kind of moving over something. Uh, the, the word is used uh, only in two other places in the Old Testament. One is in Jeremiah 23.9, where it's translated, you know, where it talks about the bones shaking. That word shake is that same word that's used for hovering in Genesis 1-2. Then the other place that it's used in is in Deuteronomy 32.11. And I want to read this because because uh, I want to bring some bearing with its understanding here in the text. It, it reads, Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. See, the, the, the picture here is the, the care and nature of, of the mother eagle as it stirs up the net and as it flutters its wings, so that the, the, the young little eaglets can just sort of hop out of the nest and begin to make its first flight. So the, so the mother hen, is, uh, the mother eagle, is, is, is nurturing and caring and things like that. And so this word here for fluttering, this, this back and forth movement of the wings of the eagle as, he, as it does that to its young ones in the nest, that's the same word that is translated in Genesis 1-2 for hovering, the exact same word. And so one commentator said, so scientifically speaking, if we were to use a scientific uh, terminology for this word, it would best be translated as vibrating. And this commentator, he goes on to say, if the universe is to be energized, there must be an energizer. If it is to be set in motion, there must be a prime mover. So what you see here is that God the, God the Holy Spirit, His care for creation, that's what you see here. 
like the mother eagle, the, the Spirit of God is fluttering over the earth. The earth that is formless and void and covered with deep waters and there's only darkness around. And the Holy Spirit is causing things to move. He's energizing things. He's manipulating everything around him, causing movement and preparing the raw materials to be organized into the kind of creation God wants it to be. So there's no chaos there. There's, there's nothing going out of control. There's no God's judgment happening here. This is God's care. It's just showing this is the earth that he's created and God is still intimately involved and he's doing things. This is God's personal care and nurturing of his creation where he'll bring about its form and provide an environment where then he can fill up fill it up, fill up the void and fill it with life and all of this will be a testimony to his glory. So this morning, we saw that there was a beginning to the creation that we see around us. We saw that the eternal, powerful self-existing God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth that he first made was formless and void and was in darkness and covered with the deep. But we also saw that God the Holy Spirit is intimately caring and is nurturing and is involved like a mother eagle moving things around, preparing the, this, these raw materials to be fully organized. So here's the thing. If God cared for his creation so much at this start, and in a step-by-step fashion, he carefully made everything so that at the end of day seven where he says he created everything and it was all finished, then as God's children right now, Why should we ever doubt his care? Has God changed? I mean, it's the very same God, right? I mean, you see his care and his nurturing of the creation and and his intimate involvement. How much more than his children? This is the God that we believe in. This very same God, this great and awesome and mighty creator God that is on a separate category altogether than anything else that we know is this very same God who cares for us. And we should never doubt his care and provision for us. And I'm reminded of Jesus' words, and I'll I'll close with this. From Matthew 6, 25 to 33. It reads, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. 
yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat and what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows what, that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for, for revealing yourself to us. Uh, through your word, there is so much more clarity. Thank you that you are this same great God, this creator God. And as we continue to study uh, the first three chapters of Genesis, help us to gain not only a deeper understanding of, of your work, but a deeper understanding of who you are. And we pray that as a result, we would live for your glory and we would not be shaken or moved and tossed to and fro uh, by the things that, are come, that come our way or by the attacks of the evil one or even by the, the, the mockings and the difficulties that come from this unbelieving world. Help us to stay faithful to you. Help us to continue to trust you and help us to give you glory, give you the glory that is due your name. And we pray all this in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.